Hello, and welcome to the Think Peace Podcast, where peace crosses the mind. The show that explores the intersection of the human brain, psyche, and obstacles and opportunities to forging a lasting peace. I'm your host, Colette Rausch, and today we are talking about the intersection of neuroscience and politics, or neuropolitics. Our guest is Leah Yu. Leah is a political scientist and novelist. Her work lies at the intersection of social neuroscience, political science, and political theory. She is the author of Vulnerable Minds, The Neuropolitics of Divided Societies. She received her BA from the University of Cambridge and her PhD from Columbia University. She has researched and taught at the University of Virginia and Columbia's Global Mental Health Lab. She regularly speaks on anti-Asian racism in German and Chinese media. Currently, she is an artist in residence at Taipei Artist Village, where she's working on a feminist novel on Chinese ethno-nationalism, dehumanization, and bicultural identity. Hello. So wonderful to have you, Leah, here with us on the Think Peace podcast. Hello, Colette. I'm very excited to be on it. Thanks for inviting me. So it's our pleasure. So let's launch in. I would love to learn a little bit more about what drew you um, to your work, your work on the intersection of neuroscience and politics. What got you interested in this area? And let's learn a little bit more about um, who you are. Well, my entry into politics and neuroscience started with an experience. Um, And that experience was racism. So basically the experience of as a woman of color, as a Chinese-German woman, to feel excluded from some larger sense of humanity that was defined in German and European society and into which I did not belong um, in many ways, Um, not just in terms of my parents' background, in terms of the language that was spoken at home, but also in terms of my body. And this is sort of where the neuroscience comes in, because out of that experience of exclusion, I wanted to find a kind of radical way to include myself again. Um, And the emotion that drove it, and I think this is an emotion that people who have experienced exclusion, whether that be racial or sexual or gender-based or sexual orientation-wise or cultural, etc., I think anybody who has experienced this understands this, there's a rage that drives you. There's an indignance. Hannah Arendt speaks about the importance of indignance in politics. And so for me, although my very first sort of way of thinking and being in the world was literature, trying to um, you know, create a literary, literary world, both to escape it and to understand it, that indignance and that rage drove me towards politics. Um, and indeed, I don't think it's, an, it's a coincidence that these emotions have come up, for example, during the Black Lives Matter protests um, as an important sort of factor of, of driving things. And the question is, what do you do um, with that rage? And um, I always knew that I wanted to search for a kind of radical inclusion. I knew that it would not be enough for me or my fellow Um, Asian diaspora people and people of color just to enter a Western political science, political theory discourse 
as a kind of sidekick, you know, basically have a sort of be given, be given a small role, be given sort of uh, be given a charitable role um, where we could just partake on the sides. I knew that if this was such a, if racism is such a, is such an act of radical exclusion, also in the context of colonialism, then the only way to get back in is to really be part of redefining what it means to be human and what is the good political life. And I really mean that from the basics upwards. And what are the basics of our existence? It's our bodies, it's our cells, it's our brains. And that's sort of how I got into it. That's interesting. You were talking about radical inclusion being something more, something more expansive on many levels than just maybe being in a meeting, invited to a meeting or being included in some way um, that wasn't meaningful. Can you expand that concept of radical inclusion a little bit more? What that looks like and what that feels like? Yes, I'll give you a very concrete example. And I, again, I think people can, you know, young people who, people of color, who um, many first generation immigrant students who are, are entering academia and, you know, the gilded halls of knowledge, they can, I think, empathize with this and have experienced this, which is um, you arrive at university and uh, you, or maybe already in high school, you know, you read these works, but let's say you arrive at university and you come with great hopes. You know, you think I've come here basically to be part, uh, take part in a discourse about democracy, about inclusion, about diversity. And you come there and um, say you're in a seminar room um, or you're in a lecture hall and um, you see a professor speak about this. And these beautiful words come out of, her mouth um, about cosmopolitan citizenship, um, about rights, about recognition. And you think, yes, you know, how wonderful that these words are coming out of her mouth and how true that is. And after the class, you go and ask a question. And in that moment, the professor, say, for example, if that professor is white, commits a microaggression or even a macroaggression. So basically, is one thing that can be said at the ideological, at the values-based level, which is genuine, that professor genuinely believes in all of these values. And at the same time, you can have an interaction where you feel dehumanized. I think this is an experience that is very perplexing, um, that is not being talked about enough, you know, um, in, in the academic context, in the educational context. What do you do with that as a person of color? Um, and this is sort of where, where I then became interested in neuroscience because you could obviously see that there's something going on at the brain level, at the cognitive level for that professor where they don't humanize you. Um, so, you know, for example, I've had this experience um, in the German context, although um, I'm, I mainly studied in the UK and the US, but when I went to conference, um, you know, you would just discuss highfalutin topics and sophisticated culture topics. And then suddenly I'd be asked, oh, um, you know, what's the best sweet and sour pork dish at a Chinese restaurant? Um, or, you know, just basically something reducing me to, to some a very uncomfortable stereotype. Um, and that is a real friction. This is a kind of, this is what drives the rage. Um, and so I realized, well, 
obviously that professor, you know, that that authority figure, let's not just call them, I mean, these are, they're different, they're many different educational, cultural authority figures who, who, who obliviously act like this. It, it's not that they haven't figured out their beliefs. The beliefs are right. The beliefs sound beautiful, um, but something else hasn't happened. And so I realized that I cannot just continue regurgitating these beliefs. I don't want to regurgitate Kant. I don't want to regurgitate Rawls. The question is, how can we make Kant and Rawls happen in the brain of that person in that moment? How can we cognitively realize it? This is the kind of jump that I realized needed to be made. And what I tried in my neuropolitical theory and this novel neuropolitical language that I tried to create in my writings and my book that's coming out. So let's delve a little bit more into that linkage that you're talking about um, that brings in the studies of neuroscience and that you focused on. And you also taught around this topic at the University of Virginia. So you also had some experiences of taking the research and taking your own experiences and your lived experiences and pulling that together in your book. But you also taught on this topic with individuals in a university. So can you talk about the linkages that you explored, how you conveyed that and what experiences you had when you were making those linkages between what's going on in the mind and the nice things and the, the things we may say and believe deeply, yet our actions and our words don't follow that in practice and, and why that may be happening. Sure. So, um, yes, I taught a course called um, The Political Neuroscience of Prejudice and Racism in Charlottesville in Virginia at, the, at UVA in 2016-17. It was a very um, poignant, uh, poignant two years to teach this, A, because 2016 Trump was elected and um, the election was happening. And then, obviously, in 2017, the horrific murder um, right. of Heather Heyer happened and um, the Unite the Right rally happened in Charlottesville. So I have to give a shout out to the UVA politics department because they took a complete gamble on me to let me teach that course, which was completely new. So um, I thank them. Um, and I started to teach it basically in the run up to Trump's election. So basically during the, during the presidential election. And what was fascinating was that the classroom was uh, full of anti-Trump supporters, but I also had a considerable amount of Trump supporters in my class. And some of them came up to me, some uh, white men who were Trump supporters, but they weren't only white men. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Um, but the white men came up to me and they said, oh, you know, Professor Yu, um, I would have never taken a liberal class on racism and prejudice if it didn't have the brain component. Mm, um, interesting. Yes, that's what's very interesting because I mm -hmm. think they found the neuroscience aspect somehow more authoritative and masculine. But also we shouldn't forget that the alt-right, of course, um, I mean, really across the spectrum, um, they lay a claim onto objectivity. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them are, you know, pretending to be kind of pseudoscientists. And so people who actually are into that path, they're not just emotionally driven, irrational racists, but they might be wrong in that perception, but they do think of themselves as sort of the objective, you know, science-seeking guys who've, who've, who've taken the red pill and who've figured it all out. Um, and so 
these people thought, okay, there's a neuroscience basis. Um, so I will take the course. And then the second thing that they said was, and because it has the neuroscience uh, components, um, I would, I knew I would feel less shamed. Mm-hmm. So basically they wouldn't just be like sort of a shaming moralizing you know liberal discourse telling me you're you know you are racist just by virtue of being a white man that was very interesting um what was also interesting we could talk about this maybe later but i will mention it now a couple not like a considerable amount of um trump supporters a couple of them were not white men they were people of color um, there were women amongst them. Um, there were groups who you would not you would not consider to be Trump supporters. And indeed, we know from political science research, both 2016 and 2020, that minorities have also come out to support Trump. And this is a puzzle I think that really only a neuropolitical approach can explain, but we can discuss that later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then when you, I just wanted to kind of close the loop on that. When one, as you were describing, has an opportunity through this kind of connection of neuroscience and politics, take a little bit of a step back to some of those narrative streams that we can fall into with the politics, that pull of us and them, and they must be this. And then pretty soon we're ripping apart fabric. You found in your class, for whatever reasons, as you described, a connection that could be talked about around neuroscience and you provided a platform for some of these conversations. So I'm just curious, how did that play out in the classroom when you were navigating? And you mentioned earlier, there's, you've got a lot going on in there. You, you mentioned rage that may come up, you, shame. You have all of these things that are coming in the room in the conversation and politics mm-hmm. and the brain. And how do you navigate that in a, in a classroom? And, and what were some of your experiences and, and takeaways from that experience with bringing some of the group discussion together? So the most important foundation with which to start was for me to say that we all have universally shared brains. Now, yes, there's neurodiversity and, you know, there's in cultural neuroscience, we know that different cultural upbringings, you know, will shape neural networks, but overall there is an equality. And I find that also very important going back to why I went into neuroscience as a woman of color. And I think like racial minorities will understand how important that is to be able to say, I, as a racial minority who has felt for a whole life that something was not quite right with the body, that her body is not equal, um, that her body will never be equal, that her existence will never be equal, to be able to say, but my brain is the same, we have the same brains, that is deeply, deeply empowering. And I say this sort of to postmodernists who, um, and I have a lot of affinity towards postmodernists and I'm partly from that school myself, but when they have, when they sort of um, offer critique to this and say, well, you can't say that we all have universal brains and, you know, these universalisms, they might be exclusionary of, you know, um, other sort of narratives, then I say, no, it is not exclusionary. It is radically, physically, neurobiologically inclusionary. 
And so in the classroom, starting from that foundation is pretty powerful because then when we read studies about the fusiform face area, which we all have, which is there to just there to detect other race, uh, other race faces within milliseconds in our brain. So basically a brain area just to do that. We all have that area. Um, and that's sort of a hard fact. And we can talk about that. I, you know, we need to contextualize that. Um, I used to say in the Trump context, uh, an old uh, Chinese grandma in Chinatown being activating that fuzzy from face area uh, in Manhattan Chinatown towards a black person does not have the same effect as Trump activating it. Why? Because he has power. So, you know, it does matter in which who, whose brain it is and how much power that person has. However, conceptually, just to be able to say, everybody calm down, you know, there's some reality. We're not, we're not sure what we're going to do with that reality normatively, but there's some reality that we can agree on that explains and defines how exclusion is happening. To start with, that was extremely powerful because the students, just as you, uh, I think, were, were trying to get it, the students then couldn't fall into those narratives that are, are being presented to them by the media or you know by their neighborhoods and so on where you would just sort of pigeonhole somebody else the, the your political opponent in a certain way you really had to radically start anew and figure out well what does that mean for us and also have a kind of almost you know like mentalize them so basically mentalize your political opponent okay so if you support trump how did you arrive at that that. You know, what, what makes your brain arrive at that? Not just to immediately give the stamp racist. They might be still racist, but to, find a, to kind of find a neurocognitive history, an origin of that, that just completely, I found, you know, changed how we were able to talk about things. And we talked about questions such as, does racism towards white people exist? I mean, this is one of, you know, the big alt-right like controversial questions and people really pretzel themselves whereas actually I feel through a neuropolitical approach we can say yes of course racism towards white people exists and that we can all activate that fusiform face area but again power structures how much does it really affect white people um, but to be able you know in that moment just to say yes it does exist even in this very narrow mm -hmm. sort of biological way the Trump supporters they really felt seen they were like okay if you can at least admit, admit that you know, let's talk about more. That was powerful. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. what also we talked about was slavery, um, which in the uh, Virginia context is very poignant because, of course, you have uh, the whole Jeffersonian history in Charlottesville. You have Monticello as a beacon of enlightenment. And at the same time, the university was built by enslaved people. Um, the very buildings you were in were built by enslaved people. And how do you combine sort of that beauty and that cruelty um, that happened at the same time? Um, and then you had, I had one um, student from the Blue Ridge Mountains, a rural student who sat in my classroom. And uh, I actually, my book, Honorable Minds, opens with him because he was, he was sort of just, you know, thrown into the UVA campus and he didn't fit in himself with the preppy preppy frat boys and, um, you know, the, the whole sort of campus culture. At the same time, he was white. And so he asked, kind of innocently, he asked, he just said into the classroom, he said, well, I want to bring up something contro controversial. And he said, I get that race, uh, sorry, I get that racism and also slavery is bad. But he said, 
I don't know why I should be responsible, made responsible for it. I don't know why I should take, why should I take any responsibility? I didn't do it. Um, and that resonated with me because I'm German Chinese, because in Germany we have um, Vergangenheitsbewältigung, reckoning with the past in the context with Shoah and, um, you know, the question, how much do descendants really owe to the victims? What do they owe to the victims? So everybody gasped in class because, you know, this is like this coming from him, a white guy, and, you know, asking that kind of question, why should I care about slavery? It could have gone pretty badly, but the whole setting of the classroom allowed us to what I call pitch the social contract anew. Mm -hmm. So basically saying, you know, there is a political responsibility, yes, and also interest for you to care about slavery. And maybe you can think about it in the context, you know, you come from a white working class, your family, you grew up on food stamps, you know how it feels like to have no health insurance, you know what it feels like also to be deprived. And it's not obviously the same as racism, but you know, there's, it's, 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 you, you, you know an echo of it in some ways in terms of deprivation and exclusion. Can you take that as a sort of starting point of empathy for um, the descendants of enslaved people, and of course, enslaved people um, in the historical context and black communities and black people now, can you take that your sort of can you can your brain take that as a as a as a bridge to mentalize the other side, not just because you want to be nice towards them? And this is where sort of my neuropolitical theory is a bit different to the current moralizing, moral, moral and value-based liberal democratic theories. I believe we always need to pitch a political interest to people. You can't just rely on people wanting inclusion and wanting democracy because they want to be nice to each other. This, I think, does not work. And indeed, classical social contract theories, I think, understand that, that we have to find some kind of political interest. And basically to say to that young man from the Blue Ridge Mountains, well, let me paint your picture where you don't humanize and mentalize cognitively other groups. And let me then take it to the last consequence and describe to you what that society would look like. It would be less safe. Cooperation would be less likely. It would be less equal, et cetera, et cetera. You would also lose out. So basically to pitch it to him in a way. Yeah, so that's what I tried anyway. That's, that's remarkable that during um, a time, as you mentioned, that was very charged and with a lot of the things that were going on in Charlottesville around the, the country, a lot of the political narratives and rhetoric that was going on, that you're able to find a space within a group to create certain things where, as you mentioned, that you at least had a baseline that we can agree that we have brains and that our brains are the same as a, as a structure. And to start from that and then to open that conversation. What are the takeaways when you kind of just reflect back right now for a moment at the whole class, that experience, what are some of the takeaways that come to your mind? Um, you've already mentioned a few of them that you think are very important when individuals are engaging or trying to engage in discourse in a diverse group where there could be a lot of these narratives and anger and emotion and political issues, all these things floating around and sometimes shooting around the room. 
Well, first of all, as I said, this shaming aspect seemed very, very strong. And indeed, this whole shaming topic has come up in, you know, many different writings, uh, like, I mean, in the US context now, if you look at, you know, articles that were written in the, in the Atlantic and um, also in the New Yorker, um, uh, Khalifa Sani, I think, wrote about this. Basically, what 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 do you really achieve with that shaming? So a whole sort of critique, like a yeah, like a critique that has arisen in response to Robin DiAngelo and Ibrahim Kendi, who openly, you know, also talk about the merits sort of of that sort of very moral approach to racism. And I'm not saying that that's completely invalid. Of course, um, I understand, especially as myself, a racialized minority, you know, you really want to tell people that they're wrong and that it's wrong. But we can't, I think it's too naive to think that it's enough. And this is something that I understood in my own racialized experience in Germany and then in the UK and the US as an Asian woman, that it is not enough just to tell people that they're bad. Um, it is not enough, at least politically, because you need people to be politically motivated, their brains, so to speak. They need to have a motivation to sort of more proactively think there's a bigger project here. There is a social contract here and I might not feel completely comfortable. I might not like everybody in there. So this is something also that I spoke about a lot to you know this younger generation, Generation Z, I think is also very much driven by, you know, is this my tribe? Is this my person? You know, also in terms of in the context of um, canceling and so on. The thing is that you might have to work with somebody that you do not like politically, whether that be, you know, in Congress, in Parliament, or even just at the community level. Does that mean that you have, if you work with somebody or even agree with them to an extent with a person who who you don't agree with in terms of their identity and their cultural outlook does it mean that you have sort of compromised your purity because this is partly also what cancel canceling is about right um it's a certain level of purity that a certain like standard of purity that you apply i think people who i mean people like you especially i mean i want to i would love to hear more about your experience there as well in terms of peacekeeping and you know really going into conflict zones um people like you know that politics is never that pure and that you have to you know talk to people especially also in a post-war context who might have even done terrible things and you know how but still they're in the country what are you going to do you know how can you rope them in so i think the whole brain perspective in the classroom gave it a kind of practical framework basically how can we make our brains get there um not just you know how do we decide on what we like and what we believe in but no after after you decided that how can you get there and perhaps our brains actually can't fully get there that's why my book is called vulnerable brains um and if they can't fully get there then should we at least try to you know sort of let them get there for example let the, let us be anti-racist um, in politically in public, but maybe we'll never, never be fully anti-racist privately. And maybe that's even, I'm not saying that's okay, but you know, like if you have a choice, then I'd rather people focus on the political than, you know, think that they can get both privately and politically. 
Uh, sorry, and finally, I would say that um, after Trump was elected, the class happened two days after he was elected. Like, sorry, I mean, we had another class um, two days after he was elected. And I knew from colleagues that they said, um, oh, some students said that they wouldn't go to class. I mean, I know if you still remember 2016, I mean, people are really, really, you know, shaken. Uh, I remember people, you know, friends in New York saying they were crying, you know, hanging in each other's arms on the street. I mean, people were just shocked. But I'm proud to say, all my students appeared in class that day, two days after mm. Trump was elected. And some even came specifically, they said of all the classes they wanted to attend, this was the one. Because they literally, and this was still fresh, it was 2016, so it wasn't, you know, 2020 where things were very entrenched, but they literally wanted to confront the Trump supporters. Some of them even wanted to say, oh, now you've got him. Um, like, what are you going to do? Basically, they wanted to see the reaction and they felt they could do that in that setting. They felt there was still some shared humanity, even though there was no shared political interest. And that I thought was quite powerful. And then we had a, yeah, also quite powerful conversation. And I did also have white male Trump supporters that day, I remember, who didn't say anything. You know, they just had sort of a smirk on their face, which was very annoying. At least they were there. So I was still, we were still influencing them cognitively. They, they still had, you know, they were still sort of sitting in the same room as their political opponents. So yeah, that was a good thing. Yeah, and then it was interesting that they were able to, because of what you talked about, finding a common humanity and you had already created a space where people felt comfortable and enough <laughs> to be able to engage in this conversation. So it really kind of setting the table, so to speak, of the work that you did, that space that you created, kind of the ground rules or the focus, those were pivotal to even being able to have people want to come yeah. and, and discuss these things and, and navigate through it. So, you know, you mentioned, um, a, a practical, kind of a practical approach of at least trying to focus on the political, even if the day-to-day -day personal, the personal private level may or may not be able to shift uh, attitudes or the way our brain, brains respond um, that through bias or not correcting these biases. Why do you think focusing on the political is so important? It, when you're when you're looking at and, and I want to look at social cohesion and the vulnerable mm -hmm. the vulnerable minds in the book in your book you know mm -hmm. why it, why it's that intersection of neuroscience if you could talk about that and maybe just to tee it up a little bit you've talked to, about um, ways that our brains work and how we might see someone of a different tribe or or someone who's not of our race and there's a there may be an automatic so quickly before we might realize it, determination of whether that person is safe or unsafe. And that's a very simplistic way. But I'd love for you to weave a little bit of the brain, what's going on in our brain, and then what, how that sometimes plays out in action, sometimes mm -hmm. consciously, sometimes um, not consciously, but how that's linked to politics and why that's so important for us to think about. Well, I think first, just briefly, why choose politics? It is a choice, of course. And this is also something that I like to, you know, ask in the current context of identity politics, you know, how woke do we want to be? Can we be? 
um, you know, how woke do we need to be? Um, at the end of the day, I approach politics from a viewpoint of catastrophe. My parents have survived Maoist China and the Cultural Revolution. My immigrant home country, Germany, has survived, well, hasn't, but has come out of Nazism, fascism, and totalitarianism with East Germany as well. So these are all very catastrophic events in the 20th century um, where whole political orders collapsed. And this is what has always informed my thinking. And one of the um, most important political theorists for me, who also is the foundation of my book, and I was trained initially at Cambridge by the Cambridge School on, on Thomas Hobbes, um, a liberal political thinker who sort of defined what is the modern state. And he also very much thought from the viewpoint of catastrophe. So basically how knowing, by that I mean knowing that the political order that we live in is extremely vulnerable at every point. And this is something that, you know, now sort of in a post-Cold War, post-Iraq, waking up from, uh, everybody waking up from their Fukuyama sweet dream and Trump and Brexit and, you know, right-wing parties and authoritarianism around the globe, sort of people suddenly realize, oh, yes, everything is very fragile. There's no, you know, society, democratic society that where we would say, yes, you know, they're going to be just safe the next hundred years. Um, so if you approach things from this kind of point, viewpoint of catastrophe and fragility, then you do realize that there's a way how you need to pitch this social contract. There's a way how you need to pitch the reason and the motivation of us living together, you need to pitch it in a quite fundamental way. We're not, you know, we're not just playing games here. And sometimes I feel, you know, in, in the current identity politics discourse, of course, many topics that I sympathize with, that I stand behind, that is a little bit forgotten. Like basically, what if all political order breaks down? And so to come to the second part of your question, you know, what do we know, what do we need to know um, in order to construct political order? So I will talk about a couple of shared vulnerabilities, brain vulnerabilities and research. So one important thing that we've already mentioned is dehumanization. Mm -hmm. Dehumanization, I uh, sort of push this as a concept because I think it's a more helpful concept at times than racial exclusion. Racial exclusion, I think politically is something quite specific. It has to have a racialized ideology behind it. Um, but actually, today, very few people want to admit that they're racists. So, you know, from right wing, from Alice Weidel, German, uh, Germany's uh, AfD, including to Trump, they don't, they don't want to say publicly that they're, they're racist. You know, nobody wants to be a racist. Steve Bannon says he doesn't want to be a racist. They give themselves other labels. So the label is not that useful anymore. So how do you still sort of access that level of exclusion at the brain level? And dehumanization, uh, blatant dehumanization comes in, for example, the work of Emil, uh, the late Emil Bruno and uh, his colleagues. Colleagues, um, you know, when you basically describe people as apes or civilizationally less developed, that's kind of blatant dehumanization, animalistic dehumanization, when you describe people as vermin or, um, you know, um, what's it called, rats or basically all of that. Um, this, this is something that our brains simply are able to do. 
And um, this dehumanization we know can lead to decreased empathy. It can lead to increased intergroup violence. It can lead to people um, wanting, uh, wanting to escalate conflict. So this is one vulnerability, I think, which is important. It's important to really name it as dehumanization. Literally, you know, I see you as less than human than me. And this is very much mm -hmm. part of the racial experience. It's also part of, you know, the experience of women and uh, being, being excluded by a patriarchal society. Um, it's the experience of LGBTQ people who are dehumanized by heteronormative society. So this is very important um, and really to see it as something in itself. Yeah, and it's very interesting because when you when um, I became very fascinated with the dehumanization framework, um, you mentioned through the work of Emil Bruno and also Lasana Harris. Lasana Harris. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's such a it's such an interesting coincidence when I um, reached out to you and then to realize that Lasana Harris had been your advisor um, and he had worked on Neuropeace and also was a podcast guest. And the reason it was so fascinating to me is because you mentioned earlier the work overseas with peace building. And it became such a question in my mind with all the countries I was working in. And then I also Germany, the Holocaust. I have my birth father was German, my family's in Germany from that side. And so looking at Germany, looking at history, looking at the conflicts um, in Bosnia, where I had worked in former Yugoslavia, looking in Rwanda, and really looking at how the political use of dehumanization in the political record, uh, I'm sorry, the political rhetoric as a design to split and divide and create violence was very front and center when looking at as you mentioned, the catastrophes. Mm -hmm. And so to me, dehumanization just seemed like such a lens that was so relevant in that context. So I really appreciate what you're saying in the U.S. context, because we don't so much use that. It, it mm -hmm. falls along racism, mm -hmm. racial, which is totally understandable given our history of enslavement, given our history with, you know, indigenous land taking and genocide. Yet it, it, as you mentioned, it can limit, limit it. And dehumanization allows a broader lens from a brain, brain side. So I found that very interesting from a conflict and political violence yes. um, and yes. division generator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, that's actually, that's a real, really important insight that you're giving there, I think, because it seems there are double standards, right, as well. Like there's a way how we talk about exclusion in the Western world. And then there's a way how we talk about it sort of in the global South or mm -hmm. in the non-Western non -Western conflict zones. And that is not very humanizing, actually. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I will mention in the US context, so there's very important research that's being done on dehumanization and black communities. Um, so at UVA, when I was at UVA, uh, um, my dear colleague, um, Sophie Travalter did research on superhumanization Black communities and denial of medical care, adequate medical mm -hmm. care. So what that means is Black people are often so-called superhumanized. 
So it's not it's not a it's not a positive thing. It sounds positive, but it's not. It means that their basically their bodies are being ascribed superhuman qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've heard that from black friends that they say. I mean, even today that doctors, you know, medical personnel, they think that I don't know black people have different skin. Their blood coagulates differently. Their skulls have a different you know thickness. Um, I mean, it's pretty crazy. But of course, these all of these beliefs, you know, they come from that period of slavery and colonialism and but the effect the the the, the dehumanization there what happens Travalt and her colleagues showed was that these beliefs um, these superhumanizing beliefs can actually lead then to the denial of adequate pain medication because if I believe that your body can take more I'm not going to give you you know I think oh well why should I you know you're not in that much pain then why should I give you uh, that you know more pain medication and also in the context of police shootings you know why are so many black men uh, shot um, not just you know once but why they shot you know uh, five times in the back or you know many times in the head or just in the, why why is there why why do their bodies have to take more why 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 there's why is there a kind of disproportionate infliction of violence on their bodies and racism the concept in itself how should I say it does not not explain it but it doesn't really capture you know okay why in that moment um, can that police officer think well you know if he's superhuman he's like a hulk um, he's he was monstrous then I can just shoot him 10 times yeah. that is what the dehumanization research explains and so I'm just mentioning that to say you know, if you wanted to use it in the U.S. context, there's great social neuroscience and psych research on it as well. Yeah, and if you're talking about, if we're really trying to look at how one starts to build another narrative that we're the, that we are we share a common humanity, to break down and understand what's driving the the belief system or the way we're we're responding to stimuli, that says something else. So I think that lens that you talked about with what happened with the police officers, the racism and those discussions, like you mentioned, it can be both, yet which both can exist, but what path might open a discussion more to kind of open the brain, to open the interaction. So at least there can be action, we hope, rather than, you know, bumping our head against the wall with no change. If a frame is not working, as you mentioned, in the political or change or transformation framework, can we open another line? So Leah, based upon the studies um, related to dehumanization, what can we take from some of those studies and incorporate some of that knowledge into engagements we might have in dialogue, peace building, truth telling processes, what can be helpful? So we know from um, various studies that dehumanization can be triggered by certain things, um, especially, you know, in terms of language, in terms of how people are portrayed in the media. So one, for example, is disgust. So there's a Norwegian study that shows that um, if people are primed in terms of feeling disgust towards um, Roma people, they will less, more likely reject them as refugees. So basically sort of disgust and dehumanization is triggered together. And, you know, that leads to sort of actual 
an actual effect, um, an actual consequence in people's policy preferences. Um, and I think this is something that people don't often pay attention to necessarily because, you know, you wouldn't think that framing a certain outgroup in, in a disgusting way, that they're dirty, that they're filthy, would have that effect on policy outcomes. So this is, I think, something to think about. And then also language is very important. So there's a lot of uh, research on the connection between language usage and dehumanization and at the same time, humanization. So there's humanizing language, uh, not describing people in a certain, so usually, for example, in the US context, often Mexican, Mexican people are animalistically dehumanized. So, you know, they describe in a kind of coarse, unsophisticated way and, um, and sort of to avoid that language. And Asians are mechanistically, and Jewish people are mechanistically dehumanized. They're seen as cold, soulless machines and, you know, who don't like individuality and creativity. And all of this sort of language usage or misusage happens really at every level of society, from schools, from uh, in the way how we talk about people in books, um, and obviously then in the media and newspapers. And this is something I think if people knew that this had an effect cognitively, mm -hmm. um, they would probably pay more attention to it. And then finally, also just some other interesting um, insights into bias that um, if you put a polling place um, in a church versus a school, for example, so church being less neutral, school is a more neutral place. If you do it in a church, people are more likely to vote for right of center candidates. So that kind of context, yeah. Um, or if uh, you sit somebody on a hard chair, they're likely to have harsher moral judgments on the world. Uh, or threat. Um, and yeah, again, disgust and smells. Disgusting smells can lead to people um, actually opposing uh, gay rights more. Um, so, you know, all of these things, they seem kind of, they would seem silly if you didn't know. Um, mm -hmm. But I think there's a way how we can sort of approach our entire social political world from a completely different, like putting on basically, you know, the, the cognitive glasses and seeing everything suddenly very differently in terms of their consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And words and environment have power in how we cognitively might respond. So, you know, just thinking practically makes me think of when one's holding a dialogue or engaging, how that space is created, mm -hmm. where that space is created. Maybe we're using soft chairs. You know, maybe we're creating an environment that's more conducive to help our cognitive processes be more open to humanization mm -hmm. in some way. So that's, that's, that's very helpful. So picking up on your book, you talked about humanization, dehumanization as perhaps it's a vulnerability and understanding it could also be a way of, uh, of avenue of addressing this vulnerability. What, what else um, were you able to define within your book for vulnerability? Um, yeah, so one other thing is the liberal brain is one of the most difficult cognitive feats of our time. Um, so basically, or, you know, achieving a liberal brain, because the thing is that our brains, so this is, this goes now into political neuroscience, um, research into Republican and Democratic brains, liberal research into liberal and uh, sort of liberal mindsets, and, you know, how that reflects at the neural level. So um, it shows that we tend, if, if we have sort of a choice, um, we tend to go for more conservative approaches and more cognitive closures. Our brains love cognitive closure 
liberalism in itself, and I'm coming back to Thomas Hobbes again, and I think Hobbes really understood this. If Hobbes were alive today, I always say that, he would be in there in a neuroscience lab and he would want to know. Yes, of course. Um, because he already actually tried, I mean, this is like maybe another podcast, but you know, he already looked into experimental methods. He was interested in the body and the senses. Um, and so we, we know liberals self-reportedly are less happy than conservatives. This is a study. If you have a liberal brain, you have to work harder. You have to sort of work against many ingrained tendencies that we developed evolutionarily and living in small groups where we quickly had to decide between friend and foe, where we couldn't just live always in a sort of liberal, ambiguous, open mindset. Um, you have to work very hard against all of this. And I'm not saying you can't. I'm not saying you can't. And my book says you can. But to recognize that that is a feat. And this is a lifetime's achievement. Um, and you can't just at one point declare this is what I also used to say during the Black Lives Matter protest, and I think a lot of Black protesters understood this exactly because they know from experience. You can't just sort of, as a white person, declare, yes, you know, I'm anti-racist and that's it now, or, you know, that it's, it's not enough. It's, it's a start. But, you know, how you have to keep working on your brain. And so one interesting study that I will throw in is a pretty cool neuroscience study that shows, um, done at UCL at the time, um, by Kanai and his colleagues that showed that self-reported liberals literally had more gray matter in their so-called anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC. That is a brain area that deals with ambiguity, that deals with sort of, uh, yeah, ambiguous information and reality. And so li liberals are known to to be able to deal with ambiguity better. They're known to sort of not have such a hostile reaction to racial faces that are ambiguous. Um, and um, yes, um, so that is a vulnerability that we have. And I think for that, again, I can't see in the current liberal and left discourse, you know, the political philosophy, how I was initially trained, you know, the, the theories that we have from Marx to Mill uh, to Enlightenment thinkers to, to Rawls to Habermas, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and even, you know, the current ones, cosmopolitanism and communitarianism, what, you know, what have you, how they can outline practically how we can maintain a liberal brain. I, I didn't see it. And so that's why I went into the neuroscience. That's why I said we have to have a new neuropolitical theory because I would not, as a woman of color and sort of first gen person, I think there's always that pressure that you have to do everything in your lifetime because nobody's going to come after you. Because you're the first, you sort of, you have to change something. And I thought, well, if I just continue on this path and just try, you know, yet another treatise on roles, um, you're just going to have, again, words for, coming from my mouth that actually will not give us, not, might not necessarily give us, you know, concrete guidance on how to achieve this liberal brain, the Rawlsian liberal brain. How can we get there is the question. So the question, when we talk about a liberal brain, one might hear, wait a minute, if, are, are you saying that the liberal brain is it's a lifelong challenge to keep it, to get there, to develop that. But is that the ideal for a society that collaborates and works better? And when you say liberal brain, the way things become politicized, 
does that mean liberal politically party? Mm -hmm. So can you tease a little bit um, apart? So, I mean, this is kind of um, an ongoing debate in the political neuroscience field itself, because on the one hand, yes, I do mean people who, you know, self-identify as liberal. And by that, I mean, you know, they support certain policies, they support certain, you know, certain level of rights for, you know, various people and minorities and so on. Uh, They have a certain idea of kind of anti-social conservatism. Um, but of course, liberalism means a lot. It also means, you know, economic liberalism. Um, there are conservatives who would say they're economic liberal, but economically liberal, but not socially. So this is actually an ongoing debate in the field. So I think th- there's that, but I think there is also something to be s- something to be said here, just for a liberal brain, much more um, sparsely defined. So without that label of, you know, which party do you support, but really more in terms of how 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 much does your brain need cognitive closure? Right. How much exactly. Does, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Rather exactly how. Yeah. If we put there's the debates within the um, as you mentioned within the field. Yet if we look at it, how it plays out day to day with people we're running into it's that closure part that was interesting to me and how much do we need kind of clear (laughs) rules and guidelines or or answers if if that's one way of saying it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, that maybe also leads me to, I should mention another vulnerability, which is conspiracy theories. And I think it's Mm -hmm. especially relevant during COVID and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, anti-vaxxers and so on. So I think this is a vulnerability that you could maybe link to this cognitive closure um, because um, they are, there's research on conspiracy theorists and that basically we shouldn't just see them as, um, you know, they're often portrayed as this sort of emotional anti-science uh, group, which yes, many of them are, but the, well, first there's research that shows that they use their own science, however wrong it may be, um, but they use their own sort of data presentation. So this is uh, research that just came out uh, by uh, my other dear colleague, Crystal, uh, Crystal Lee um, at MIT, um, showing that, you know, the way how they present their, their conspiracies is not just, you know, like whispering through the Facebook channels, mm-hmm. but actually making very sophisticated graphs, uh, you know, using some kind of level of data presentation. They think they're scientists. It's really important in all of this to know that often these groups, they themselves, whether it's the outright or them, they themselves think that they are the rational ones. Um, how hard that might be to, you know, fathom, but they think that uh, some of them. So there's that part that actually they, they don't necessarily think they're being anti-scientific. Um, and then conspiracy theorists apparently have a heightened pattern ascription. So they see patterns where there are none. So literally they see connections, you know, Pizzagate or whatever, where, where, where there shouldn't be one. And they're like, oh no, but there is that connection. And that is very much also part of, you know, kind of how all of our brains work. They just take it to the next level, but it's a, it's a vulnerability. It's a kind of, kind of capacity that we all have because the human brain, social, the social brain in order to survive has to detect patterns in its environment. The question is, where do you stop? Where do you know that, you know, now it's time to basically not think that next step. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then there's another um, aspect of conspiracy theory, these, which is um, a heightened agency ascription. So you sort of ascribe agency to people and institutions that they don't necessarily have. 
but you basically think, yes, you know, they're secretly doing this and this and this and that. And so this to me is linked to the liberal brain because um, I think conspiracy theories are very comforting, just like cognitive closure theories. They're comforting um, because the world, you figured it out, right? Now you figured it out. All you have to do now is just to, you know, hide, hide out from the vaccines. All you have to do now is just to, you know, get your weapons arsenal or whatever and fight those people who want to, you know, I don't know what, what, what crazy conspiracy theories are out there right now. But um, yeah, so this is, this is something, you, so you see, I'm basically talking about this in a way I move, I don't just put the conspiracy theorists sort of in one corner. Um, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't oppose them politically, but from a cognitive viewpoint, I'm tr I've tried to just show you that we are also, we have a similar starting point, all of us. And some of us, you know, move all the way to that far out, far right corner where you shouldn't go. And some of us know where to stop, but we are all starting from the same origin. Um, and that's a very different way of approaching it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And even when you're describing it, and it, you know, even with your hands, I know people are listening, it feels more expansive because when one goes down to the pointy end of the spear and starts attacking or shaming, it just shuts all dialogue down. There's no understanding. There's no way from that. Yeah. There's no way from that. Yet when you look about more expansive, when we are looking at, we all share these, but as you mentioned, some go down different paths. It plays out in different ways. Then it gives a starting point going back to your classroom, a starting point of we share the, we share brains. And from that standpoint, there's a, there, there could be more openness, more availability of us to, to describe. And I'm, when you were talking to, it made me think a little bit about some of the work around the imperative for survival as a species and as humans. And so in some way, some of these things, these drives that we have for certainty, for filling in gaps, for even creating patterns, for looking at others who may not be like us, has some level of a biological imperative for survival, that there are reasons for that. And like you said, it doesn't mean then, okay, we, we have these vulnerabilities, oh, well, let it all play out and let us all just kind of tear apart our, each other and our societies. But I love how you talk about let's pull back and understand these vulnerabilities of humanization, dehumanization, of the liberal brain, um, how hard that is to hold on to um, conspiracy theories. These types of things can really bring us together as a starting point. Yes, you're absolutely right to call it a biological imperative, actually. I think that's a very good term um, because we all know that when we feel something is imperative, you know, we feel it's almost like a life and death decision. Um, and going back to uh, very expensive and interdisciplinary and wide work that Lazana Harris, former advisor, is doing, mm -hmm. um, what I really love about his work is what I've learned through him is to look at the social brain through this evolutionary perspective, through, you know, not just, it's, that it's not just about, because sometimes social neuroscience and social psychology, it can, it can become very much focused on like very small scale experiments. 
very particular experiments, you know, in terms of uh, dehumanized perception or um, intergroup conflict and bias and so on. And you sort of lose the bigger picture. And um, Lazana Harris, also in his book, Invisible Mind, he really, you know, draws that expansive picture of our whole sort of evolutionary history and how does the social brain fit into that. And he really sort of destigmatizes um, all of these vulnerabilities and biases without, um, you know, excusing them. And this is also something, again, that I think the brain perspective allows us to do, which the currently highly ideologically charged political debates do not, which is to look at these things without just by naming them doesn't mean that we agree with them just as you said you know just because we and, and with conspiracy theories I mean I've, I, luckily I haven't had one in my family yet um, although you know yes sort of friends maybe um, older friends um, no and actually also some younger friends but you know I, I hear this from other people that they literally have somebody in their very close family who's a conspiracy theorist and obviously you all started out together as a family um, so there's some commonality and I think people are genuinely you know puzzled and and saddened and um, you know how this can happen so close to home and I think this kind of yeah, this kind of approach that you just described with the biological imperative and also sort of the wider evolutionary perspective. I don't want to say that it's just forgiving because, you know, it's it's forgiving in terms of the vulnerability. It shouldn't be forgiving in terms of the political actions they take out of it. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I love that separation. I can almost think, and, and I this came up to me when you were talking about your classroom. It's pause. You know, all of that, the, the politics, all those things that are soaking our nervous systems daily. Let's try to put a pause just for a moment. They're still going to be there. And can we come together here and understand? Can we be curious? Can we just be curious yeah. and understand that then might help put ourselves biologically, our mind and our body in a little bit more open state, perhaps, to be able to then parse through and navigate some of the other things that the outcomes that are coming and understanding the vulnerabilities, which it just sounds like, and I was so interesting. It was so interesting to me how you navigated your class. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm, I would like to just, you know, ask you if somebody were engaged in a process where they're bringing together diverse groups to try to come to some, some level of connection to try to work through challenges or bring down the temperature or work at looking at some of the structures that feed um, division and that feed dehumanization or, you know, we talk about in the U.S. some of the legacies of enslavement and how do you begin to address institutions and relationships where, where enslavement and racism and dehumanization have become, you know, part of those structures. What types of things come top of mind that you might advise peace builders, reconcilers, people engaged in this to be mindful of or things that you've learned that could be helpful from your research in your book? Mm -hmm. Well, I think something going back to that, my Blue Ridge, white Blue Ridge Mountain student um, was that he was actually still on the fence. So, you know, he was young. He could have swung either to the right or even far right eventually, 
or he could have become more of a liberal libertarian. He was on the fence. And I think something to remember is that a lot of people are actually on the fence. Mm -hmm. So um, there is research that just came out in the context of the 2020 election about US voters that basically polarization, they're less polarized than we think. This is research by uh, Yudkin and his colleagues, um, but there's a big so-called exhausted middle. He calls it exhausted, exhausted, exhausted middle. Exhausted yeah. middle, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah. Okay. So there's a big exhausted middle and yeah. these people, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, on Twitter, for example, you have, you know, the loudest voices are always the one who are on either side of the uh, polar polarized spectrum, but there are a lot of people actually, this does not represent society. And so if that is the case, and a lot of people are on the fence, um, so basically, you know, I've talked to people who say, you know, I'm not for racism. I'm not, you know, I, I don't think, you know, um, enslavement was a good thing. You know, I don't think women should be oppressed, but I also feel threatened by cancel culture. I've heard that a lot. Mm. Heard mm -hmm. that, yeah, I've heard that by white people, but even non-white people. So this is something that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, this is the work of Musa Al-Gabi at Columbia, a sociologist, um, showing that in 2020, there were minority groups that, um, uh, I mean, sorry, the New York Times showed sort of showed that, but he explained it. Um, there were minority groups from the Latins to Black communities to Vietnamese communities um, uh, that voted for Trump. And apparently why they did was because they thought Trump could defend their own minority interests best against other minorities. And as the daughter of Asian immigrants, yeah. I really get it because, you know, what would often happen is, and in my, in my parents' case, they're luckily quite liberal, but, you know, like in, in other, I, I could see it in the Asian community, um, there are a lot of, you know, like old Asian dads who are extremely racist and they are, you know, they have hold very conservative views, but nothing in my liberal college education prepared me to argue with those people in my community because we would just be given, and this is also something that I say in my book, this is we are failing this younger, more diverse generation, but basically thinking that they can just go home and sort of, you know, uh, with Rawls theory of justice and swing it in the air and then uh, everybody's going to nod. No, you need a different language to persuade those communities. And it's very conflicted, um, especially during COVID. You know, I was active on the anti-Asian racism front uh, in Germany and in German public as well. And at the same time, you know, there, there was also, of course, racism going on against black people by Asian communities. And it's just, it's very depressing and it's mind boggling. And for us minorities who are in it um, and, you know, who want to change that, where's the language? Where's, where's mm -hmm. the persuasive language for that? And so I hope that this neuropolitical language can also sort of fill that void. Yeah, so right. this is... But going back to your question, so basically yeah. knowing that there are a lot of people in the gray zone, mm -hmm. and this is both a chance and a challenge, but I see it as a chance because just like Lazana, I am an optimist and like you, and I think it's a chance because we have knowledge about how to address them. We just have to do it the right way. We have the cognitive knowledge and the question is, and this is why, you know, I wrote my book and I sort of researched this I at the time was I felt 
you need the brain science research in itself is not enough because it doesn't give you a language. It just right. gives you the data. And, and how, perhaps understanding, but how do you translate yeah, that understanding? Exactly. Yeah. How, and most importantly, how yeah. do, going back to Hobbes now, how do you translate yeah. this into a persuasive language? It's, it's rhetoric, but it's neuropolitical rhetoric. Um, how do you translate this into a persuasive language that touches people, that makes them feel, A, they feel seen, what we just talked mm -hmm. about, how important that is for people to feel seen. So, you know, about peacekeepers and people who work in diverse communities. Once people feel seen, they kind of, they literally, I know, I mean, I don't know how it feels when I feel seen. Oh, you sort of, you just, you know, exactly. you just, yeah, you just breathe. Yeah. And then, yeah. 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 Yeah, you breathe. It, it's just your whole, even what you just did with your whole body. It's like, ah, oh, I just relax. mean, I don't, yeah. I don't have, it's like, I don't have to hold up the armor. You know, I can just yeah. breathe. Yeah. I'm heard and I'm seen. I'm, yeah. I've, I've been validated. Exactly. Because a lot of the politics that happens both on the left and right is about validation. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they say it's about ideology, but a lot of it is just sort of validation. And my goal is how can we move away from that and talk about the real political issues? Because this is the end goal, also Hobbes' end goal. Sort of how can we end up on a, end up so that our minds, are, our brains are open enough towards each other, even those whom we disagree with, that we can discuss real political issues mm -hmm. that actually affect all of us from global warming to poverty to inequality etc that is the end goal how can we get sort of our best possible brains to that conversation yeah no absolutely and how can we create spaces and how do we support individuals to be able to translate and to come into other spaces and connect, have that relationship and figure out the language of connection and language of collaboration, problem solving, some of these you know, deeply difficult challenges rather than pulling apart. How do we create that space? So Leah, we've talked a lot about um, the brain, the cognitive process, and we've also talked about the biological imperative, the biological imperative for survival. We've talked a lot about how experiences impact us and how we respond. Can you talk a little bit about the body's role in this? Obviously, we, you know, we hear mind-body, we hear about these connections. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, so I started by talking about this radical exclusion that I felt um, from my racialized experience and how I wanted radical inclusion. And I knew that I had to start to do this politically because if racialized minorities are not partaking in the basic political theories in their bodies, basically in, in the bodily cognitive imagination, if they're not part in there, they, if they don't part, take part in there, then they can't take part anywhere really. Because at the time I was going to pursue a literary path. Um, I was going to write a novel, uh, I, you know, I had it all planned out. And um, I knew though that, you know, art, literature, creation is not possible if sort of these political questions are not decided first. Um, and so for me, now I'm writing a novel, which comes from the time, yes, which is a feminist novel, 
that tries to deal with Chinese nationalism and the question, you know, how, why China didn't liberalize properly. And um, I think for me, that is a twin work to my neuropolitics work, because the neuropolitics work is about examining dehumanization and exclusion, almost like a crime. I used to, I wanted to become a homicide detective when I was younger, when I was a child. And to me, racism is the crime. Exclusion is the crime. And if that's the crime, have we need to get to the bottom and sort of find out who's done it and how. But after you've done that, and this goes back to also Black Lives Matter um, and other social movements, after you've done that, you need to heal and you, do, you, you need to create a new world, a new language, a new phenomenology through which to humanize yourself. And I don't think politics can really do that for you. I think literature and um, what I'm also doing work at as an artist in residence at Taipei Artist Village in terms of dance, that healing can only happen, I think, through a more literary and also, in my case, now dance-based um, path. And so, you know, instead of calling it Wagner's Gesamtkunstwerk, I call it Gesamtliberation. Um, you know, first liberate ourselves politically. Um, and then sort of, um, you know, draw up a life, a whole rich life, a whole life horizon, as Skarama would say, where we can be fully human. And how does that look like? And there, I think the body plays a very big role, because if you just feel your body is battered, and you use your, you know, you use your brain a lot as a sort of intellectual racialized minority to figure out the crime, you need to find a way for the body to enjoy being in the world again as an equal brain and human being. But how do you do that? It is creation and then you create and you heal. That's, that's amazing and so beautifully said. And would you look at those as going along intertwined? Do the healing? Yes. And, yes. So it's, they reinforce each other is what I'm understanding from what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Could you imagine a world where, where, and what you're talking about is a new language, you, you're, you're really pushing out, touching into what is and what has happened, yet not losing sight, if I'm understanding, of what the future can be and creating that future with the acknowledgement of what is, and as you mentioned, changing the political, the, the, the crime, addressing those those issues that are driving us apart, racism, dehumanization, and the fallout, and then weaving together with that a whole beautiful future where, where we exist together without those, or as you were saying before, as best as we can as humans. Yes. It's driving yes. towards that. Yes. No, we need to. I mean, I've, you know, I've had people, when I've spoken about the, the the racial sorry the brain basis of anti-Asian racism I had people get very emotional I mean I got emotional you know people were some of them were crying and then sort of in a academic context then it's like okay you know lectures over and then there is that crying body um, yeah. and I'm not saying and it's not right for me just to go and say oh let's hug that's not the point but that crying body is both it's a liberated body they're crying. And I know that because I have cried over this. They're crying because the knowledge is liberating you. You yeah, cry because suddenly you feel empowered because you know, but you also cry because you realize what has happened to you. 
So there's an out agency that, part. Yeah. But out of exact exactly, you're absolutely right. This is agency, this is Kant as well, this is autonomy. Mm-hmm. This is there's there's a beauty in that to be an autonomous being suddenly again. But how do you, what form could you, you know, after that person cried on that, in that academic setting, what way could we find? I don't know if at George Mason, you have like, um, you know, maybe workshops on this. Like, what's the next step? What would be the next experience? Exactly. No, and it's, it's what you're really describing so beautifully there is it's not possible for transformation for liberation for moving forward as a common humanity if we just cut off that body that experience of the full as as you were describing the recognition the flowing through the body of that experience the agency of the fullness of recognizing and capability of what can be and the possibility of what can be we just cut that off like you said the classroom door then it's losing the whole purpose in a way of why we learn and how to incorporate that. So that could be, you're doing your book, you've got your novel. This is perfect for the work that you're doing of how does one include that in academia or in workspaces or in, in, in offices, in government buildings. How do we, how do we re Yes. Revisit and reframe how we interact in these structures in a more fully, um, I don't know, holistic, holistic, way. Yeah, holistic way. Yeah. Embodied mm-hmm. holistic way where we're bringing together all these things that are, are cr- like the crying. I almost thought of like this crying out. It's like crying out to be joined, you know, and not mm-hmm. separated mm-hmm. in some way. So uh, before we close, is there anything else that we talk, didn't talk about that you'd like to talk about? Anything that you would like to say? Well, I was thinking just as a afterthought after what you just said, um, mm-hmm. darkness. Mm-hmm. So I think um, one problem that we have in our kind of post-Cold War world and the liberal language that you know we have to speak about the human condition and the political condition is that there's not a lot of space left for darkness. Um, and that has been taken up by people on the outright, you know, from Carl Schmidt readers, who is, you know, used by uh, the Chinese government uh, to defend uh, oppression in Hong Kong and uh, so on. So basically, you know, except for a couple of people sort of on, on the um, on the right, uh, such as Carl Schmidt and so on, who speak about this kind of darkness, um, there's no real space for darkness. And yet there is darkness in all of us, just as there is also light. But to be able to confidently face up to those darker parts of us, and this is something that sort of my German political upbringing has taught me, is a virtue. It is a virtue and it is necessary. And it is an art as well. How do you do it without sort of glorifying, you know, your own your own perpetrator role um, in history? How do you do it without thinking that only other people are dark and you are not? So how, how, to deal, how to deal with those vulnerable aspects of our minds, our brains, in a way that is both unafraid, so basically saying, yes, we have these capabilities within us. Yes, we have the capability for torture. We have the capability for exclusion, for humiliation, for doing terrible things. Mm-hmm. And yet in the face of that, to still say, 
but I believe that at the end of the day, if people have the choice, they do not choose the most humiliating life. So this is like a quote, you know, about uh, totalitarianism, totalitarianism, totalitarian states, what they want is to humiliate their citizens. And we can see it, you know, in the totalitarian uh, countries in the world right now. And I believe that deep down people do not really want to be humiliated. And that is me being optimistic. I mean, that's what, you know, I, I live by, but it is a kind of subtle truth. And I think to to have faith in that. So even people say who have gone the wrong path and joined, you know, the far right and so on. I still believe there's a chance to sort of access these people's darkness and these people's injuries and whatever injuries they think they are feeling towards the world um, and still appeal to a life that is led outside of humiliation. Yeah, and no, that's beautiful. And it's very much a um, an understanding, as you mentioned, that that we all have these parts, the human nature of whether there's darkness or things that we are capable of that we may not want to think we're capable of, or as you mentioned, past historical things like the Holocaust, and the, there was actions that happened, and that was within a society, within um, families that are within our generations. Yet I love the part, and there's the aspect of we of the, the human parts that do aspire and do move towards um, great things and humanity. And there's example upon example upon example of that, you know, rising together after ad, you know, adversity or natural disasters. If we could tap into that, Mm-hmm. and hold that space for that to grow and to embody that that's very powerful rather than just sinking into that our darkness but it's difficult if we don't acknowledge what are mm. the capacity for darkness as you say so I love that um, description mm-hmm. as you said that's beautiful so thank you very much Leah for joining us on the think peace podcast it was really just beautiful and covering it and you're so clear and I love how you pivot between the studies and then the experiences and then the work that you did at UVA and your own personal experience I mean you beautifully because it all goes together naturally you beautifully pivoted in and out and um, we're able to do that so adeptly so thank you and um, in closing your book will come out in spring um, around June, you mentioned in June. Okay, and could you give the title again and where that will be available? Sure, it's the title is Vulnerable Minds, the Neuropolitics of Divided Societies. And it's coming out with Columbia University Press in June 2022. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Colette. Thank you for joining us this week for the Think Peace podcast, where peace crosses the mind. And thank you to those who make this podcast possible, the Mary Hope Foundation and our amazing senior producer, Cam Kasser. Please visit our website, www.thinkpeacepodcast.com, where you can subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes and news. And remember to think peace.